let's go on an adventure. Now, that comes out of my childhood when my grandfather would say that, and that usually involved ice cream. But this is not going to involve ice cream. This is going to involve so much more as we adventure through the book of Psalms. If you want to know the heart of God, then you have to look at God's word. There's probably not a better book in God's word than Psalms to see his heart. So we're going to go through the book of Psalms. Now, we're not going to go through all of it. We're going to cover 45 Psalms in the weekend teachings, 15. And then in your group experiences are the videos I'll release on Monday and Friday. We'll look at a Psalm a day those days in short videos. So, but I want you to engage, to lean in and to really get the heart of God and see the heart of God in the book of Psalms. Now, this, this adventure is going to be filled with all kinds of things. It's going to be filled with praise, with heartfelt struggle, with the, the intimacy of revealing the, the heart of God and willful commitment that people make as they follow the heart of God. Now, let me give you some Psalm facts just to kind of get us moving forward with there. The book of Psalms is really called the book of praise in Hebrew. In the book of praise. Now, some think it's a hymnal, but it's really not a hymnal. It's a collection of poetry that's been compiled over many, many years. Now, the, the time frame of the book of Psalms has been kind of interesting that it covers from uh, the time of Moses in the wilderness all the way through the Babylonian exile. So we're looking at hundreds of years of the compilation of this Hebrew poetry. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Actually, the book of Psalms is really five books, five distinct books. Now, some theologians believe that it's five books representing the, um, the books of the Pentateuch, you know, the five first five books of the Bible. Eh, I don't know. Maybe it's coincidence. Maybe it's intentional. Usually with God, it's pretty intentional, but five books. In fact, I read one historian said that in, in the middle of the book of Psalms, you really have the Chronicles of Hezekiah and that you could say that the book of Hezekiah is found in the Psalms, but we won't go down that road. That's a little crazy theological trail, but it's really five songs. Now, the Psalms are written by several different authors, and I'm going to give you the authors and who wrote the Psalms, and there are a number of them. So King David, he wrote 73 of the Psalms. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was the one who compiled most of the Psalms, and he wrote these Psalms throughout his period, uh, a period of his life, through the time he was struggling as he was running from Saul, from the time he was coming into his kingdom as the, as the ruler of the king of Israel, even after he had fallen into sin and depravity, even after he had had the rebellion of Absalom, he, he wrote these Psalms, and you really see his heart as a man after God's own heart and that internal struggle. The sons of Korah, they wrote 11 of the Psalms. Now, who are the sons of Korah? They were part of the Levitical tribe, the priestly tribe of, of Israel, and they wrote uh, 11 of these Psalms. Now, you'll read more about the sons of Korah in the books of the early books of the Bible and Moses' conflict with those dudes, and that's pretty, Google that and look it up. It's really interesting. And then you have Asaph, and you see Asaph, and this, this is kind of a, not particularly a person, but the singers in the temple. That was the, the group of musicians who wrote and sang songs uh, or gave these psalms in the presence of people. And they were usually set to music. And you see the word selah kind of inserted in there. That means a rest or a refrain. And, and so it's, it's written to be sung. And that's the Asaph. And then uh, you have Solomon who wrote two of the psalms. And then some dude named Ethan who I couldn't find out who that was. Maybe you could find out who that was. And he wrote the Psalms. And then you have Moses who wrote one Psalm. He wrote Psalm 90, where he said, Lord, throughout all generations, you have been our home. So that kind of gives you a look at the Psalms. Now, it's this classic Hebrew poetry. 
Now, it's a display then of logic. It's logic that's built upon logic. It's poetry not measured by rhyming meter, but by logic compelled by logic. You'll see some of it's symbolic, some of it's reflective, some of it's counterintuitive, some of it sits in juxtaposition to one another. But you'll see that, that, that book of Psalms as it's, as it's kind of divided into those, those categories. Now, the editor started the collection of the Psalms in a brilliant way. He starts with Psalm 1. And what he says here in the beginning is really basically a pathway to blessedness. Or we might say a pathway to being happy. Do you really want to be happy? And the struggle with all of this is, is that yes, we do. But happiness is depending upon external things and not internal things. And what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 1, introducing this whole concept of a blessed life, said these are the things that God wants you to experience as you're experiencing him in this new and fresh and dynamic way. So we're going to go on this adventure together, and we're going to look at Psalm 1 to begin with. And I think in Psalm 1, we're going to find the power and the purpose and the people of God and to see his heart in a clear clear way. So let me pray and then we'll jump into this. Father, thank you for what you're saying and doing in our hearts and lives this morning. And I pray, Father, it'll be your words that come from my mouth, not mine, not my thoughts, not my reflections, but yours that take us on this great adventure. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. God always wants you to be successful. Now, some of us don't believe that. We believe that, you know, God is just mad and he's out to get you. But actually, God wants you to be successful. I was reading a commentary by a preacher in the, in the late 1800s and he said, the ovens of God are always hot, ready for the wicked. Well, a little harsh. So I wanna to talk to you about what God's saying here in the book of Psalm about being, about being successful. And he uses the word picture of being planted. Now, I just talked about that a second ago, but I wanna kind of extrapolate on this word picture of trees. Now, we, we, the Psalm were written in Hebrew, and Hebrew is a language of word pictures. So he's giving us a word picture about being planted, a planted life. And he says, do these things, life will go well. Do these things, and life will go poorly. But the word picture of plantings is very very interesting. Trees have significance throughout scripture. If you look at the book of Genesis, you find trees in the garden. That's <laughs> a garden without a tree, right? You see trees in the garden. It's the garden of, of, of God's glory, the garden where he placed man and woman. And he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of the tree of life. And they broke that. They broke that commandment and they fell into sin and the sin curse happened and it was through a tree. Then in Deuteronomy, it says this, cursed is one who hangs on a tree. Of course, that's a look ahead to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The curse in the garden came through the tree and the breaking of the, of the curse came through a cross. You see where I'm going with that? And then here in Isaiah 61, or actually in Isaiah 61, it says, we shall be the oaks of righteousness, the plantings of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So trees are very symbolic here and God wants to plant your life. And so he gives some practical instructions. Here's the first thing I really want you to pay attention to in as we walk through this psalm. And we're just going to look at it piece by piece, as it were. Here's the first thing. Watch. Watch with whom you walk. Watch with whom you stand. And watch with whom you sit. Now let's look at this kind of in this bite-sized piece. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, it's interesting that he said that. It's a practical advice. Show me your friends. I'll show you your future. That's right. It says this in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Ours, one transla- translation says, bad company uh, ruins good character. That we are influenced by the people with whom we associate. This creates this kind of this pull in our lives, our, our peer pressure, our, our, these, these kind of social norms we gravitate to. And I look over the course of my life that I've seen things that we weren't saying, yeah, you don't need to do that, are things that are now commonplace that people accept because we've allowed the culture to shape us instead of God to shape us. We've been shaped by cultural norms instead of biblical authority. And I'm not talking about legalism here, but this is what God's saying. You better be careful you know, with whom you walk and with whom you stand and with whom you sit because it's going to influence your life. Now, here's the three situations. Walking literally means direction or who has your ear or where are you headed that I'm going to walk in this direction. I would tell my kids when they were teenagers, don't open a door that you pass through that you can never close. That we open doors for opportunities that lead us into bad places. And that's that walking, that direction of, of your life. Pastor John, later in his epistles, he's talking about, you know, walk in the light as he is in the light, and then we'll have fellowship one with another because that light of Christ exposes the good character in our lives. So we want to walk with people who are in the light, not people who are in the dark. And that's that, that tension, and the psalmist is saying this as well. Standing means placement. Uh, who's on your side? With whom are you standing? Where do you take a stand? Now, in this season that we're experiencing right now, we have politicized everything. Everything. Whether you wear a mask or don't wear a mask, whether you hunker down and hold on or whether you get out and, 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 and social distance and all these things, we made it political. But what God's saying here, you better pay attention where you're standing or where you're getting your authority or where you're taking your stand. Now, I want to say this to you, and I don't want to offend you, but I want you to hear me. God is not political. God is not. And as Christians, we have a civic responsibility, but we need to be directed by God and not the pundits of politicians. Now, that's just, I'm going to say that and move on. But we have to be careful of with whom we stand. Who is in my representation? Who is in my company? And then sitting means grouping. Who am I grouping with? Uh, with whom uh, others associate with? And now this would what I would say, okay? If I want to be in a group, sitting in a group, I need to have a group that bears my convictions, that bears my beliefs, that bears my theology, because I'm going to be influenced by them and they're going to influence me. Now, this is perfect Hebrew logic. Three situations in life, three places of walking, of standing, and of sitting, and it's done very intentionally. The just chosen pathway of a life lived poorly is evident in this place. If you walk with the wicked, if you stand with sinners, and you sit with mockers, you're going to become one of them. What? Yeah, let me repeat that. If you walk with the wicked... You're going to be be wicked. If you stand with sinners, you're going to be a sinner. In fact, all of us are sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. But you've been redeemed from that when you believed in Christ. Hmm. Or if you sit with mockers, you're going to become one. And there's an old colloquialism that says this. 
lie with the dogs and you wake up with fleas. Oftentimes, these colloquialisms are rooted in great wisdom that you are associated with whom you walk, stand, or sit. Pay attention. Pay attention. So I've got to shift my focus. Where I'm walking, where I'm standing, where I'm sitting, I need to pay attention with this association, and then I need to shift and look around and become intentionally about the progression of my life. So shift your focus. Now, this is what it says in verse 2. But his delight, that's a person who wants a blessed life, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, when you see the law of the Lord, it's referring to the Mosaic law, obviously, but it's also of referring to the extrapolation of the Mosaic law that gives you a pattern to live by, that you delight in that. You're saying, okay, God, I'm going to delight myself in what pleases you, not what pleases a system, but what pleases you. I'm going to let you be the one of my character. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to stand with you, and I'm going to sit with you. You're going to be my primary influencer. And those that I'm in community with, those who are with me are going to have a like-minded. But he meditates on this law day and night. That means this delight is a powerful word. It's the delight is a reflection of joy. It's a reflection of blessedness. Now, I can't help but draw parallels to my relationships. There's people that in my life that I delight in. I love to see them. I'm excited to see them. I, I want them to be influenced by me, and I want to influence them. I, I, I want to be in relationship with them because relationships make my life rich. And what God is saying, delight in me because the law is synonymous with the heart of God. Oh, if I'm going to see the heart of God, then I delight in what he's directed me to delight in, and I'm going to meditate on that. Now, this word meditate is really interesting. It really, it means that I'm going to focus intently. I'm going to walk, stand, and sit with Jesus, and not with wicked sinners or mockers. I'm going to focus intentionally on him. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, enduring the, endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what this is saying here, this, this Psalm 1, the writer of Hebrews, looking back on this psalm, saying, listen, if we fix our focus on the things that matter, actually the person that matters, if we become centered in Jesus, then our lives work. And we're blessed. I, I wear a bracelet. You see it's yellow. It says, all for Jesus. If you'd like one, just shoot us an email. We'll get one to you. It's, it, and this is what it says, that I want to live my life meditating and focusing and following King Jesus. And we want to do the same thing as a church, that we want to live all for him. The writer is saying that direction, influence, and character only come from Christ, only come from God through Jesus Christ. It's that focus on him. Now, this is intentional shifting. I have to be thinking of being placed in a dif different ecosystem from where I was placed. I have to be planted. Many years ago, I went to Chicago on a training adventure. Actually, I was invited to come up and spend a day with a very uh, famous pastor. I was a young guy, and this hotshot pastor of this huge mega church, he invites me to come spend the day with him. When his secretary called me, I didn't believe it was her. I thought it was you know, one of my buddies playing a joke on me. Well, I accepted the invitation, and I went up, 
and I was talking to them at this beautiful campus about South Texas. And I said, in South Texas, we have a tree called the Wesatch tree. And that Wesatch tree, when it takes root, it is rooted. I mean, you have to get diesel and burn out the roots to get rid of the Wesatch tree. We can pull it up and it'll come back. You can cut it down, it'll come back. You burn it out, it might come back even then. A Wesatch tree is a tough tree. Now, also, this Wesatch tree is not really good for anything. It grows long thorns. Now, the birds like it because they can hide from predators in it. But the Wesatch tree is really not a useful tree, but it's an invasive tree, a troubling tree. I was telling them about the Wesatch tree. This pastor says, oh, yeah, Pastor Scott, you should send one up so we can plant it on our campus. And I said, have you lost your mind? I'm not going to be the guy that brought an invasive species to Illinois. I'm not going to do that. But see, that's what we do when we don't pay attention and shift. God desires that you live all for Jesus, not be rooted and grounded in a fake ecosystem of wickedness, sinners, and mockers. I have to be intentional about planting my life in Christ. Planting my life in Christ. Huh. The maturity of the tree then will bear the weight of the fruit. Let me go on to say, we have to choose to thrive, not to wither. Let me say this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. Now, I want you to kind of hold on to that word prosper because we're going to talk about that in a minute. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, chaff is the residual of when you, you harvest wheat you gather the wheat kernels and everything else is just scattered. It's chaff. It's blown away. And what he's saying here is that the blessed life is the one that's planted by God and that bears fruit, like a tree planted in a place to thrive. Now, we were going to do this video out on Cypress Creek in front of this massive cypress tree that's been thriving for well, well over 100 years. And, in, and so you can imagine that tree behind me. And, and what we're, I was going to say there is that you need to be like this tree. This tree has weathered storms, weathered history, actually weathered the birth of Texas standing right in this spot. It is planted to thrive. And that's what God wants you to do. He wants to plant you to thrive. But what he wants to do is to get you to bear fruit. Now, I started this quote earlier, and I need to kind of to tell you what I meant by it. The maturity of the tree is to bear the weight of the fruit. I've got a friend of mine, he's a pastor in Houston. He grows tomatoes. And he, we were talking, I was coaching about some stuff. He said, Pastor, I, I'm just really aggravated. And I said, what you aggravated about? I said, I planted some tomatoes in my backyard. I said, well, that's probably good. I can't do that. The deer will eat them here unless I put up a high fence and electrify it and everything else. But he says, I planted some tomato plants and I went out and I saw that my plants were huge, big and bushy and thick but there was no tomatoes. And he said, then I realized that God made that plant big and strong so when the tomatoes come, when they come, they could bear the weight of the fruit. God wants to build my life in such a way in maturity that I'm planted that when the fruit comes in my life, I'm not taking credit for it. I'm giving him the glory for it. A tomato plant does not produce tomatoes for it to enjoy. It produces tomatoes so you can enjoy 
or produce seeds so future plants can grow. Oh, so when my life bears fruit in its season, that means God has matured me to the place where I don't live for myself. That's a pretty big thought. So I can weather the struggles of my life because I've been planted and because God has grown me and I want to be planted deep in the heart of God, in the soil of my Savior, King Jesus. Then whatever I do, it says here, prospers. Whatever I do, prospers. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, when I say prosper, so many of you jump automatically to the prosperity gospel. And I hear guys talk about this all the time. Your breakthroughs are coming. The best life you ever want's coming. And God is for you. And he has a purpose for you. And he's going to break through. And, and all these things are true, kind of. But this is really what prosper means in this context in the Hebrew. Get this. It means, prosper means to live in such a way that God's glory is made known through my life. To live in such a way that God's glory is made known. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I think about my life. That if you see anything good that comes out of me, it's because of where I've been planted by Christ. It's not my own doings. It's God's doings. And God wants me to live in such a way in his rich ecosystem of being planted in his nurturing, life-giving streams of water that I bear prosperous fruit that people say, well, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the one working and revealing in my life. Hmm. Now, the wicked, they don't thrive. They stand on shaky ground. They're blown away. They walk with a limp. They're impeded. They sit on broken seats, really with no place to sit. They shaky walk on unsolid ground with a broken seat. Hmm. I don't want to be like that. So I need to turn my life to Christ. I need to turn my life to Jesus so I may be planted in the ecosystem of Christ. So you know what that means? That I have to choose to live into the canopy of God. Now, a tree casts a canopy, as you well know, and that if I'm, if I'm living all for Jesus, I, I cast a canopy of influence and of righteousness and of fruit bearing, that my life becomes a joy to others, that, that I give life, that I'm prospering, I'm living such a way that God gets the glory. But God literally puts us under his canopy because he's the one who created us to live all for him. The Hebrews have a great tradition. They had that and they still do, that when couples are married, they're married under a canopy. And when they're married under the canopy, they're signifying the covering of God, the covering of God. I, I tell my children this. I said, as long as I'm your father, I'm your papa, that you live under my umbrella. I lived under my father's umbrella, his covering, his canopy, as it were, that my life then was not caught in instability or insecurity because I had a canopy covering me. I was protected. And I want to be that kind of father. Why? Because God is that kind of father. We live under his canopy. And I have to choose 
not to flee from it, but to willingly plant myself under it. And you decide where you're planted and by whom. You decide. Now, the wooing of the Holy Spirit draws you into a relationship with Christ. You can't even come to Jesus without Jesus drawing you. And when you say to him, yes, Jesus, I'm yours, I'm going to live my life all for you, you choose the planting of where you can thrive. When you say, no, I'm done, I'm done, I'm not going here, you put yourself out in the wilderness, the wilderness of the wicked, the wilderness of the sinner, the wilderness of the the mockers. That's a pretty sad place. Right before I was going to teach this, this time with you in the Psalms, I was reading something on the internet about a Christian artist who's just rejected God. And I thought, how sad. All these years he sang for Jesus, but he didn't belong to Jesus. And he finally came clean that he really didn't believe. He chose to live life under a false canopy of cultural Christianity. And it failed him. It failed him because he never met the real Jesus. He just met the church Jesus, the denomination Jesus, the Christian music industry Jesus not the Jesus who draws you to life in himself. And I want to say this to you in a loving way. You could be deceived by cultural Christianity or you could be received by the God who loves you and revealed himself through King Jesus and draws you under his canopy to live all for him. You see, Jesus knows who you are. He knows your ways. He knows where you, you stand, where you walk, where you stand, where you sit. He knows. He says, come to me. Come to me, and I will put you under my protection. I will put you in my provision. You can live under my providence because that's where I want you to live. So I have to shift. In writing this this talk, I found an old poem that we read in, I think, elementary school. It's a a poem about trees. I think you're going to recognize this. Let me read it for you. I think, I, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against earth's flowing breast. A tree that looks to God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree who in summer wears a nest of robins in her hair. Upon whose bosom, whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me but only God can make a tree. And as I was praying and preparing this talk and thinking about you and speaking to you about this, I thought this, sermons are written by fools like me, but only God can plant you as a tree by the living waters that you might become the oak of righteousness for the display of his splendor. So I wanna ask you this question and I'll, I'll leave you alone for a while. Where are you planted? Where's your life? Are you rooted in the soil of cultural Christianity? It's time to move. Are you rooted in the soil of pop culture? (laughs) It's really time to move. Are you rooted in King Jesus? Are you thriving in him? (sighs) Lives are written by fools. Lives are lived by God. Will you turn and give yourself to this one who's given himself for you? Only God can build a life. And that life is yours and mine when we say, 
Jesus, I'm yours.